0: hey everybody welcome to another episode of views on view i'm your host lindsay wardell with me today is luke diebold welcome luke hello good to be back yeah it's been a little while it's great to have you here
1: yeah has been a while the the podcast recording times is like 4 a.m my time but yeah now thankfully daylight savings and all that stuff has kind of like realigned me so it's nice to be back on me on the
0: podcast again absolutely well today is just a panelist episode It's Luke and myself, and today we're going to be talking about building a package that you want to deploy on NPM and be able to install and run within a Vue application. Some of you may have once installed something from NPM, and it might be nice to explore how you can put something up there yourself and release your own packages. And over the years, there's been a lot of different tooling that lets you do that kind of thing. I've used handwritten things. I've seen articles about custom bundlers and custom scripts to build NPM stuff we just wanted to talk about the approaches that we're using today to build new NPM packages.
2: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want. Right. So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: And Luke, let's start off with what you've been doing. You've talked a bit on Twitter and on your own podcast, working with Firebase Composables. And I'd love to hear more about what you're doing and kind of the history behind what, what inspired you to work on that.
1: Yeah, sure. Because those of you don't know, I do um, a lot of Quasar-type videos, so coding videos I'm using Quasar. And one of the biggest requests I get is how do you authenticate Quasar with XYZ? It could be Django. It could be, it, it could be Firebase. It could be Laravel Sanctum. There's just so many different like authentication backends that people are using. And the most common one is probably Firebase. So everybody wants to know how to use Quasar with Firebase. And my guess is that probably translates to like other, um, programming, uh, other frameworks as well. And so I, I sort of thought to myself, okay, fine, I, I'm finally going to do this. I'm a Laravel guy, but I'm going to figure out how to authenticate with Firebase and set everything up with Firebase. And so I kind of went and started going down that rabbit hole. And then halfway through, halfway through, sort of planning the building for that video series, I realized this is way too difficult. There's so much like tiny little boilerplate things that I need to do, and it just felt weird to be like, yeah, this is how you set up Quasar with Firebase or Vue app with Firebase. And it just kind of felt like there needed to be something that sort of bridged the gap between authentication with Firebase and Vue, especially since now we have the composition API, and that makes it really easy to create tools for for something like authentication. So I thought, all right, I'm going to give this a try. And I started building my own Firebase composables library. And the idea was you could have like a login composable. So like use Firebase login, and then like use Firebase register, use Firebase logout, and the idea is like, I just kind of keep adding these composables and building up this library. But then it kind of occurred to me as I kept doing this, that, you you know, in a composable, how you would export everything at the bottom of the file. So you'll say like export login, maybe there's a form as well. So you export a form and, you know, and all that. I realized that the API for the things I was exporting in Firebase was the exact same for when I was doing a login library for Laravel Sanctum, like they were identical. At the end of the day, when you said log in from a composable with Firebase, it would it just return a promise, just like when I was using Sanctum. Or if I said log out, it returns a promise. When you have like an identity password login, so like an email password login, you're always going to have a form that's got the identity, which you know is usually the email and then the password in that form. So it was like, I kind of had this epiphany where it's like everything is the exact same. Why don't we just build an interface for this? And so that's kind of led me down the path now of um, building this library called Auth Composables, and maybe that's not a great name for it. And the idea is this is just going to be a library of interfaces that you can implement. And the, the cool thing about this is you can then start swapping out authentication libraries, so you have an interface for interface for Firebase, an interface for Django. You know, for all these different ways of authenticating, and they all look the exact same. You, all, you use them all the exact same. The setup might be slightly different, but at the end of the day, they're all using the same interface. But here's the cool part. Like here's a really exciting part. And this is going to be like the final thing of what I want to build. I can then have a library for Quasar, like an authentication library. And all of the auth components, so like the login form component, the register form component, the logout button component, they can all, you, they all follow the same interface. I can use those same components for different authentication libraries. So now you can have a register form that will work with Firebase, that will work with Laravel Sanctum, that will work with Django, that will work with anything. And it means that I can say to people, okay, if you use Quasar's authentication library, all you need to do is implement these interface and you'll be able to use all of these. Yes, work and add stuff for you. So it's annoying things like redirects. So for example, if you've got a login page and you're already authenticated, you should redirect to the dashboard page. Um, um, and you're not authenticated, then you should go back to the login page. Um, you know, handling all of that stuff is often is really annoying when you first land on the page. Anyway, I won't go into the details of that, but that's kind of what I've been working on. I like a group of libraries, you know, that sort of start with a, with this authentication interface, which I'm then going to implement with like Superbase, Firebase, Laravel and a few others, which is then going to become a Quasar app extension. That will allow people to very easily create, um, you know, set up
0: authentication with Quasar. So that's what I've been working on. So, and yeah, so cool. And I love that it came from that desire of wanting to teach and wanting to help people know how to do that. I mean, oh, this is actually really hard. Let's make it easier. And then you can teach people how to do it the easier way. So that's, that's really neat. I have also been working a project. Mine, I don't think is as large in scope or as high impact. But what I've been working on, so I currently work as a developer at No Red Ink. If you're not familiar, No Red Ink is a company that makes software for learning English and writing, targeted primarily at middle and high schoolers. And one of the big claims to fame within the tech community about No Red Ink is that we use Elm in production. Elm is a pure functional programming language. With Elm, you don't need to use something like Vue or React or NPM or any any of the things that the JavaScript ecosystem ecosystem uses. It's completely separate. It doesn't even have any frameworks because there's just Elm. Elm does the whole thing for you. So as an Elm as now I'm an Elm developer, I want to be able to use that in the applications that I've already written, such as Vue. And one of the best ways to learn anything that we're talking about, whether it's Vue, whether it's React, whether it's Elm, is incremental adoption of it. So if you are previously a view developer and you want to start learning Elm the easiest thing to do is not all right i'm just going to go to elm site start the the initialize start a brand new project i'm just going to write everything in elm 100% it that's not the best way to learn elm it's not the best way to learn anything is if you can it's always best to take the context that you have take something that you're familiar with and switch it a bit so that you're using it piece by piece in an incremental adoption strategy so what i have been working on and i actually started this project a couple of years ago but uh i abandoned it after i didn't need it at the time is a package called elm view bridge and the intent is to be able to render elm modules as view components so that as you're starting to write Elm and you're starting to get familiar with it, you can just bundle it as a view component in your application, render that Elm code, get familiar with the syntax, get familiar with its type system and how pure functional can work, but you don't have to rewrite your entire app. So if you already have an existing Vue application, you're just able to bring in a little bit of Elm here and there. And over time, you can do that migration if you decide to as an experiment. But you don't need to. You can just leave it at that one piece and everything works fine. So I've been working on this library, Elm View Bridge, which in general is very simple. It just takes an Elm module that you import and then returns you a Vue component. But it's just been a lot of fun digging into it and trying to integrate it further and further into the Vue ecosystem. So if you decide you want Elm, but you don't want to think of it as the separate thing, you want to treat it like a regular view component, you can do that. And then on top of it, I've been exploring how to write documentation for it. I've written a handful of NPM packages in the past, but typically my whole documentation is just the readme file that goes up on NPM itself. So a lot of what I've been spending time on is building out a ViewPress site for this library, putting up examples of how you use this, how the API works, why you would want to use Elm at all, do some comparisons between Vue and Elm. So the documentation site becomes itself a learning tool for learning Elm and thinking about from a Vue perspective as a, as a Vue developer, getting your head around this functional programming language. So that's that's what I've been working on at the same time. And I think it's really interesting, Luke, that we've been doing the same thing where we're, we're both wanting to educate, we're both wanting to help people to, to mm. know more about code and explore, grow as developers. And so we turn to making a package, which I, I think is really interesting
1: yeah yeah i guess like it's it's just so frustrating when you want to teach something and you feel like you're spending time teaching convoluted you know stuff it's like you lose like i I want i want to spark my first video i want 10 minutes in the video, I'm probably even seeing it like one to two. I've got something up and running or It's working. It's wonderful to use. Like, I just felt like it's difficult to get that, even with something like Firebase, which is notoriously easy to set up. So yeah, I, I think that's where it comes from. It comes from like when you're teaching something, you get a new perspective. Your perspective changes from let's just get this working, like when you're building a project, to let's get this working in a way that is going to be as easy to understand as possible for the person that you're teaching it to. So yeah, I think that is cool. And I'm, I'm hoping that it forces me to create really nice APIs because you're constantly thinking, you know, as you're building it, what would it be like to teach somebody this thing that I'm building? Do you get that too? When you're building Elm bridge, like that sort of thought process.
0: So the original version of the package that I put up was treating it very much in an Elm centric way. Mm-hmm. When you initialize an Elm application, you have to give it a DOM node. You have to, or you can pass it in flags as like an initialization object. And you can also, when the application is created, you can subscribe to ports. Ports are the way that Elm communicates back to JavaScript if it needs to. So you can either send data into Elm or subscribe to data from Elm. And I was I treated this component that I created very much in an Elm-centric way. There are flags, there are ports. Ports you can either send or subscribe, but it's you, you receive this object of ports. And that's fine if you're coming at it from an Elm perspective. But if you're learning it from a view perspective, we're very familiar with the component model we're very familiar with props and events and listening to things and doing bindings. So, the API in order for a view developer to understand what's going on, the API needs to be designed with that in mind as well and support both models. So, we originally I was just it was a function took in an elm module and spit out a component at the end. Now it's a function that takes in an elm module and you can pass in like the component name. So if you're looking in the view dev tools, you can see the name of the component. If you're looking, if you want to pass in props, Mm. you pass in a standard props object like you do to create a view. Since it's view three, I'm also having an emit object so that you can tell it what events are coming out. And then internally, Elmbridge is mapping to the different ports within Elm, assuming that they're there to pass the data back and forth with view properly. What about you? I've, I've, well, so what, a, so you
1: what are some of the uh, so you don't even need to really understand at this point the concept of ports in Elm, which I actually don't, like I'm pretty um ignorant to how Elm works. But you can use it with a lot of that view language.
0: Yeah. So in the documentation, I, I need to clean this up a bit more, but in the documentation it explains as long as you use this name for the port, I think it's like update props or something like that, whenever Elm tells the props to update it'll send the message out to view and then view will update the local state accordingly as an event cool
1: like I have to admit when I first thought about this concept my first thought was how do you do it in a way so that you can br- make bridge that gap so closely that you're not doing extra work if you know what I mean like like you're not doing too much um clunky stuff on top in order to get view and elm to work together and it sounds like you've built it in such a way that it
0: almost feels like writing view in Elm. Yeah, that was, that was kind of the intent to, to be able to minimize the differences between the two and have that interface. One of my goals, and I was actually able to prove that this worked is to be able to use the Elm view bridge inside of so that you can build a full mm-hmm. application and you've got view for some of the templating and some of the, the global state. But as soon as you get into the, the core of what a specific page is supposed to do, you're just in Elm and you don't even have to think about it. And using a CSS library like Tailwind on top of every makes that so seamless. It just—it feels really nice to switch between the, all the languages. Yeah, cool. It's exciting. I, I've always wanted to
1: programming language, and I even tried it once and found it a really interesting. Like sometimes it was painful, and sometimes it was like, "Wow, this is so much easier." So yeah, I'm very on to try. It would be nice to do a functional
0: programming language that's sort of geared to the front end. Exactly. And when I started with Elm, that was kind of my experience of, "Oh, this is." weird. I, I don't understand what's going on. I had to try like three or four times to get into it and be like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. And I was able to start working on a side project, which is still running two years later. It's one of my longest lasting side projects.
1: So what, what are one of the
0: big goals of Elm? So, the just use, use, you know, a other language? The major benefit of Elm is, so I'm going to walk through it and I'm, I'm thinking this through as I talk, I'm still putting together this page for the docs, actually, to, to make sure my opinion is correct for how I feel. The main yeah, thing sure. about Elm is it is a pure functional programming language that delivers a delightful development experience. That's, that's its tagline on the site. So the pure functional part means you aren't worrying about mutation. All data is immutable. You're also not worrying about side effects. One of the downsides of any JavaScript framework, whether it's Vue or React or Svelte or whatever, whatever JavaScript framework you can pick up, just inherently mutable language that allows side effects. And the more and more you work on an application, the higher chance you're going to have of causing an accidental side effect that you don't mean to, you don't know where it's coming from, and it just causes errors. That is that is one of the downsides of JavaScript. And we're trying to add things like TypeScript. TypeScript does a lot, but it doesn't solve all of the problems because TypeScript is only running during development time. It's not there at runtime. Once you compile, TypeScript is gone. So there's still there's still that issue of preventing things from happening that shouldn't be happening. And that's where Elm really comes in. It ensures that your code is doing exactly what you told it to do. Elm is running, its, its type system, for example, is running at runtime. so making sure everything is the type that it's supposed to be. All functions are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. There is no chance of mutation. Mm-hmm. The the other big benefit of Elm over any other any other that I've seen is its compiler. Uh, its compiler is super friendly. So if you have an error, for example, instead of just saying like, error on line 37, Da-da-da-da-da. I don't know what to do with this. It'll be like, hey, there's a typo. I'm not sure what to do here. Maybe it's one of these and it gives you some suggestions. Or if it's if it's an error that it recognizes like, oh, you're passing in an integer, instead of a string. This should be doing this. If you need help, here's a link to the docs." Like It's that level of friendliness that it almost feels like it's pure programming with you. One of my favorite things about programming with Elm is the combination of it, the Elm compiler and GitHub Copilot at the same time. Because it's just like these two people hovering over my shoulder telling me, Hey, this, this, try this. How about this idea? And it just feels so nice to work with. Welcome back, everybody. There was a bit of a technical difficulty. The internet failed us, but Luke is returned and we're going to continue our conversation now. So yeah, I don't remember exactly where I left off. I know I was talking about Elm. I love Elm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was curious to know about, you are talking about side effects.
1: What exactly does that mean and why are they bad? So like, what are some of the things that would go wrong in JavaScript that would not go wrong in Elm because of side effects?
0: The big thing that I can point at. Let's let's think of a standard component for example. In our component mm-hmm. we have an a field. So let's say it's a login form of some sort. You've got a ref for username or email or whatever you're using. A ref for password and you're binding those into inputs in the template. Great. Now we need to submit. Mm-hmm. In our submit function, so on our on our form we're handling on submit, do this, prevent default, all the all the things that we do as javascript developers. Within that submit function that we're going to write We're accessing the values from the username and the password, sending them up in our fetch, getting a response, storing the results, doing something, right? Yeah. All of those values are outside of the function scope. So we're accessing the ref outside of the function. We're accessing the email outside of the function. If we're storing the result, we're storing it outside of the function. The function isn't returning anything because it's just a function invoked by an event. Mm -hmm. So all of that is happening as a side effect, as potential errors in our code. If this function, our, our sign-in function, can access these values, any function can access those values. So while we're submitting, state could change. Values could be mutated that we're not expecting. In general, I feel like we as as view developers and JavaScript developers are uh, disciplined about not doing that, but it's something that could happen and it's something that does happen on occasion. Another, another potential issue with this concept of reaching outside of the function, for example, is we're going to find Undefined is not available, cannot read null of undefined. All of the the joke errors the JavaScript runs into. And that's all because none of these values actually got passed into the function, and it's not isolated. So that's where the pure functional part comes in. Within Elm, you cannot access any value that was not given as an argument to the function. It's just impossible. So if you want to invoke that login function, for example, you need to pass in all of the values. And actually, the way Elm handles an HTTP request it's triggered from your update function so when i when i describe elm as like update function think of something like redux or vuex where there is a single object and update is a function that then does a match against like a switch statement okay yeah so when you do the login it's firing that update function sending it a message of sign in within the update function you have access to your entire state you then make the http call passing in just the values that you need so you the, the username and password. And then the HTTP call knows which message to send back to the update function saying, I got a result. So then update is fired again. Update now has either a result that's good or a result that's bad. You have to handle both cases in Elm. So you're never ever left in a state that couldn't exist. You have to define every state in your application. So in that way, you're not worried about mutation. You're not worried about side effect of my login, change something, I'm waiting for an HTTP request, something else happens that invalidates mm. the data that I just sent. Every Everything is in sync. So that's one of the benefits of Elm is you don't accidentally change data that you're not expecting to.
1: It almost sounds like it also forces you to not be a lazy programmer. You always, you have to cover like, and this is one thing I'm starting to find with TypeScript as well, that it, it's some, there are some situations where it's going to error out unless you do like some checks, unless you make sure you handle these edge cases. And it sounds like Elm is kind of like that, but even stricter. Like you can't write code that is going to that is going to break your application. I'm sure it's possible, but it's much harder to write code that is going to
0: break. One of the uh, claims that my company, No Red Ink, makes is we have almost no runtime exceptions with Elm, and that's because Elm, the Elm compiler, will not compile if you can create an error. It it just prevents error states from happening. Like obviously your data can have errors and you need to handle those, but the Elm runtime itself should not crash because of your the code that you've written. It will continue to work. It will do everything that you tell it to do. So yeah, like that the the switch statement for example, you cannot write a switch statement that does not cover all cases. And in, in Elm they're called case statements, but same idea. So it, if you're not covering all of the different options it will not compile. You have to cover every single option. If you have a function that's supposed to return a string, you can't return null. There is no concept of null in Elm, first off. But if you say a function returns a string, it must return a string. It can't return something else. So if you say I'm returning a string, and you don't find the string you're looking for, either you need to update your function to potentially fail, in which case maybe it's a a maybe value, where it's either a string or nothing, or you need to return an empty string. So that that's some of the things you need to think about when you're building an API with Elm is what kind of data am I expecting? Is there a potential failure? Will I always get a value? Will I sometimes get a value? Make sure all of the cases are handled.
1: It sounds really helpful. It sounds like even if you don't stick to Elm, just by using it, it forces you to think about how you handle decisions in code. Because I know, like, I've definitely been guilty and still am often guilty with getting tired at the end of the day and then just being like you know I, I don't know about you but sometimes at the end of the day at work even the thought of create file just feels like too much it's like your willpower is really high at the start of the day and then as you towards the end of the day your willpower just gets lower and lower and lower and so that's when i start writing crappy code that's when i start writing code where um, i'm not handling errors correctly or i'm letting things slide and it it would be cool to have a language that basically says you can't do that. Like I'm never going to let you let things slide. So that's kind of what's really intriguing me about Elm Elm right now. Just knowing that first of all, it sounds like it's going to turn you into a better coder and it's going to stop you from being lazy when you want to be lazy.
0: Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. I feel, so I started learning Elm a couple of years ago, just as an experiment. And I feel like, as I was learning its concepts, as I was understanding what it was doing, I became a better developer. I was able to take those functional concepts that were that Elm provides you and then bring them into a View perspective or a React perspective. So it's a lot easier to bring them into React than Vue, because a lot of React was inspired by Vue. Like Redux, for example, is directly inspired by the Elm architecture. All right. So there, there's a lot less of that in Vue, because Vue is so heavily reliant on mutation and very fast and loose. You might say with with side effects, especially with things like the the composition API properties and watch effect. None none of those take arguments; they're just doing things. Um, so, yeah. but but you still learn to even if you're you're treating it with side effects and you're treating it with mutation, you learn to treat those things with care and kind of watch what's going on a little more carefully. Even if your code isn't going to catch it, you were able to. Yeah. Yeah, true. That's the goal of Elm View Bridge is introduce Elm, introduce these concepts into the View ecosystem. See if, if you want to keep going with Elm, great. There's ways to do that. If you want to stick with View, but want to apply its concepts, great. That's awesome too. And so it, it really is, that's why I chose the name that way. It's, it's really bridging between those two communities and those two languages and ways of approaching web development and, and putting it together into everyone becoming better developers.
1: Yeah. I, I remember I'm um, talking to you previously about i can't remember what it was but some somebody telling you that in their company they set they set things up in such a way so that they can try a whole bunch of different technologies and some some of them might not so like a very um i I guess like progressive
0: approach i can't speak for every company i know richard feldman for example who's very prominent in the elm community and works at no red ink has given a number of talks on no red ink doing this incremental adoption so first, they tried out Elm in a very controlled experiment, and it worked. Uh, they did the same thing with React before that. They, then they tried other languages like Elixir or Haskell. And the experiments mm. that work, they continue to grow and expand. The experiments that don't, they don't necessarily kill them off. It's just, it's there. It works. Don't get rid of it. So like I think at work, we still have some React code. I think at work, there's still other, other languages, other ways of doing things. Like, no Red ink was started with CoffeeScript, and there's still the legacy of that choice in the code base. we are not going to eliminate it until it's necessary. Yeah. But it, it gives you the room to expand and, like you said, be progressively build out your application so you're not staring at it thinking, okay, this didn't work. Let's rewrite the whole thing. That's that's not what we want to do. Yeah.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to TopEndDevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's TopEndDevs.com slash coaching.
1: And it's funny how like, you know, that's kind of the dream, I think, when you start out as a programmer. You know, you, you have this very like, at least this was for me, I like I had this very pure mindset, like I want all my code to look the same. Um, I'm going all in with this technology kind of thing. But now as my project scales more and more and more, I'm realizing like we have a mix of options API and composition API at the moment, for example. And sure, it would be nice if everything is in the composition API, but does it really matter? All that other stuff is working. It's working really well. Clients are using it. Clients are loving it. Do I really need to convert it to the Composition API? Like it, it might be a good goal to sort of reach one day because I, I think a lot of that code would be cleaner and maybe a bit easier to manipulate with, um you know, a lot of the new concepts we've introduced with the Composition API. But like another one is, is state management, especially with Vue. State management isn't like this big library. Like you can have Vuex and Pina running at the same time and it's not really such a big deal. Like my brain kind of twists and turns at the thought of that. Oh, am I really going to use two state management libraries? But it's like, you can do that and you can keep moving forward. And sure, you might kill Vuex at one point, or maybe you'll wait till, you know, Vuex 5 comes out, or maybe you'll use like some other state management library in the future. But it doesn't mean that you need to go back and kill all of that code straight away. You can keep pushing forward using these new toys and things are still going to, you know, be okay. And that's one of the things I love about Vue. They've done such a... A phenomenal phenomenal job
0: keeping that backwards compatibility. So, we're talking about how we're building these packages. I know we've just talked a lot about Elm, which I love, but I figure <laughs> our people listening actually want to hear how we're doing all this. So, what technology are you using, Luke, for bundling your off Composables.
1: So I'm using Rollup and the reason I use Rollup is because I just looked at libraries that I liked. I haven't done a lot of package work in the past, sort of building my own packages. And yeah, so I went to the Vuex ORM page, uh, GitHub page, because I love that package. I think it's beautifully built. And I just like copied. I just looked at everything that he was, you know, um, that Keir King was doing, grabbed bits and pieces and just copied sort of those concepts. So I'm basically using a butchered version of his build process. And it turns out that he's actually copied a lot of what the Vuex library was doing. So yeah, I, I've been using rollup, but before we started this podcast, you kind of blew my mind about another alternative to doing package development. If you wanted to share that,
0: but first I wanted to comment, can we, can we call this approach Franken Okay, <laughs> right. I, <think> Frank-
1: <laughs> I get it now. It took my brain a while to catch up. Yeah. I Franken packaged it. Yeah. Big time. Yeah.
0: Okay. So. What I what I was telling Luke before the episode is, I don't know about you, but I'm a huge fan of Vite as my development environment for building apps. I recently, Mm. I I was in the same predicament because I had a, so with Elmview Bridge, I built it two years ago. I'd put together a custom bundle setup that wasn't great, didn't really provide testing, didn't really provide anything. I just wanted to get it out the door and I wanted to rebuild it with something more modern. So I I just did a quick Google search. I don't remember what I looked up and I landed on on the Vite site there is under their building for production, there is a library mode. So if you're wanting to build a library or package for anything, but in this case, view, they provide documentation and instructions on how to do that. And basically all you have to do is in your, um, v config, you, you configure your build to you be in lib mode. And, but for that, you just pass in its entry, uh, which is the folder where your library actually exists in source you name the, the pack what it's going to be. In their example, it's MyLib, and then you just tell it what for file format you want it to use uh, for the output files, and it will automatically create ES module and common JS files for you. On top of that, you can then provide it additional roll-up instructions, so for example, Veep by default doesn't export TypeScript types. It just strips that out, it's a build, you're done. But you can bring in a, a roll-up plugin that lets you keep all of the TypeScript types as well. So for my build right now of Elm Bridge, I'm exporting an ES module, I'm exporting a CommonJS, I'm exporting the TypeScript definitions, and it's all just getting bundled into the MPM package that way. And I have absolutely loved this build setup because I'm able to spin up Vite as my development environment just create components so like i've installed vue router i've installed a number of, of different page features and i can just jump between pages making sure that lv bridge is working as expected and then at the end of the day i just compile and ship out the uh, the built the, the built library files
1: yeah cool this is what blew my mind I had no idea that you could build a package with vite as well like yeah and and that it works so
0: well nice thing about being able to use Vite as the development environment and as the build step is I could then integrate ViewPress super easily. So I'm using the new mm. version of ViewPress. I think it's just VuePress 2. So I have access to all the plugins. I have access to the normal stuff. But then I'm also using Vite still within VuePress. So, for example, I want to render the Elm components that I'm generating with Elm View Bridge. I can just import them as components. I've configured Viewpress to use the same plugins that I need for Elm to work in V, and then I can just run it and everything works great. So I have my docs folder, I have my source folder, I have my distribution that gets built, and it's all within the same repository, it's all within the same code base, I don't need to worry about multiple compile steps. Oh, I'm also using Cypress component testing, which has a VE, uh, mm. instructions. So all of the components that I'm building as as my test components are getting tested with Cypress. And it's just the whole thing just feels so nice. And I'm just using the one build tool for the whole thing.
1: It almost feels like just building a normal Veep project, but just the build step is a little bit different. Like the build step is turning it into a package. And so you still get all those niceties of Veep. And it's almost it almost feels like you just, yeah, like I said, just building a normal Veep project. And by adding this little bit of extra configuration, it turns into a package. I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well, but yeah, de- definitely going to give this a try.
0: Feels accurate to me. That's that's how I feel when I'm working with it. I'm just building. I feel like I have two Vite projects. One is the one's the docs. One's my development space, kind of like my workshop. Uh, but they're both in mm. Vite, and then my build is in Vite, and Cypress is in Vite. It makes the whole thing so easy to work with. So I highly recommend it as as the choice if you're wanting to build a package, even if you're not doing it for Vue, because Vite does support other frameworks like Svelte or React or Solid or Lit. I'm sure that this. Uh, workflow would work for any of those frameworks as well.
1: Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Cause at, at the moment, I've got a folder, like a source folder, which holds all of, um, you know, the, the files for the project and everything's built in there. And then a separate folder, which is a V project for then testing. So like for the Firebase composables, there's the source folder where I work on the composables, but then a separate folder that is then for like testing the build and you know it just feels like so one of the benefits here is that everything would just be vite code. I don't have to context switch between rollup and vite anymore. So yes.
0: I mean because vite is using rollup under the hood you're you're still do them side by side a bit but probably significantly less than you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, right. Cool. And so do you do you have to do um or do you have any kind of a reap up or like like how does that work? Do you use yarn workspace? Or you just have the one
0: package.json? Uh, currently I just have the one package.json. I haven't felt a need to break that out for, for my build. I'm, I'm including view as a dependency, but that's the only dependency. Everything else is a development dependency. So I don't think, I don't think it impacts at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Okay. Interesting.
0: I could be wrong on that part, but I don't think it's causing any, any downstream issues. If anyone knows that I'm wrong, please tell me. I like knowing when I'm wrong.
1: You're making me wonder now, why did I turn it into a monorepo? Was there a legitimate reason? I think it was, I think it had to do with not having to use yarn link anymore, especially with quasar projects. Often you have to, you kind of have a folder that has an entire qua- quasar project in it to really test it properly because of like stuff for you and rather than doing like a yarn link to the package that i'm using and there's just so much so much stuff always goes wrong with yarn link and it's so hard to like set up and make sure that everything's linked up correctly and um i found that i had problems and i was doing direct links because it couldn't find packages properly in the node folder and it was just a nightmare so i ended up just turning it into a mono repo and it fixed all of my problems so i think that's why i went with that but made with my smaller projects like the ones that aren't using Quasar like the just the Firebase Composables project. I can um change it from a mono repo just into yeah, a normal repo. But it's the opposite of a mono repo.
0: I'm I'm gonna change the topic for a brief second. What are you using for testing on your library?
1: Currently I'm not. I'm very much in just play around mode. But I'm just about to introduce Cypress, I think. Don't really I don't really know what else you can use at the moment, simply because it's hard to test composables with anything else. like uh, the great thing about Cypress is you kind of seeing what you end up with at the end of the day. Whereas, like, uh, maybe there's an answer to this, but I don't really know how to use something like Jest to test composables.
0: I can't think of an example for testing composables. You could, I guess you could write, like, a dummy component, render it in Jest, and then like, observe internally what the composables are doing. But that feels like testing implementation details, so it's probably not the right way to go.
1: Yeah, my, um, I don't have a lot of testing experience. I'm kind of, like, late on the train here. I'm mm-hmm. embarrassed to say, but <laughs> so i'm kind of curious if i was testing something like this this is what i had in my mind i have like a page that has all the functionality in a very basic way so registering logging in logging out basically all of that kind of stuff and then i just use cypress to test all
0: of that functionality does that like sound like the right direction it does to me so yeah, because you're having to test the whole the whole end-to-end workflow as it were. I would definitely say Cypress is the way to go on that. Either either with component testing or just standard end-to-end. Obviously, you just have like a dummy app that's that's for perf- the steps in that case. But that seems like a reasonable test in that case. For for me what I'm using is the Cypress component testing because all I'm doing is making making components, just turning Elm code into view components. So, I'm rendering the component that's generated, making sure it's responding how I'm expecting it to, and then I just test it props and events are getting passed around properly yeah yeah okay that makes sense and it what's really nice about cypress is that you get the the screenshots and videos at the end as well so that you can see exactly what it's doing how it's acting so if you do have errors you're able to very easily validate what's going on why isn't it working whereas with something like jest it'll just say i couldn't find it my bad (laughs) yeah yeah that's the one of the
1: amazing things about cypress i think is they've done an amazing job bridging the gap between a test runner that is you know running in your browser but something that can still run really well not in a browser i mean technically it's still in a browser but like i i feel like i can develop in a very um you know being able to write my tests in a very kind of like how do i explain this like a, a web developer kind of way like with with cypress i feel like you kind of get the best of both worlds there you can sort of just play around click around inside of like the cypress test runner but then you can easily just very quickly run all of your tests without opening up that test runner.
0: That the uh, I can't remember what it's called right now, but there's the uh, experimental mode where you can actually make your tests in the test runner as well. So like you just enable this mode and you you click around in the UI and it records everything you're doing and saves it as a test, which is just so nice. Yeah,
1: super curious about that. Can't wait till that sort of becomes more
0: of a thing. Have you tried Have you tried it in spe- experimental mode? Oh yeah. The only downside I found is. It's doing very specific CSS targets, so it's like button bracket button, you know, imp- you know. Some I can't describe <laughs> it easily without seeing one in front of me. It's it's super specific CSS to the specific element that it, you're clicking on, which is fine as long as your UI never changes. But for a better test, you still need something like t- testing library to come in, update it to be like find by text, find by role, something like that instead of super, super specific mm. CSS tags.
1: Right. Because I thought that if you gave things IDs, like you know how Cypress has that way of getting a CSS selector? You can click on that button and then click on one of the component, you know, part of your um, component, and it will give you a very specific CSS selector. If I give my components an ID, it tends to just use the ID in that selector. So I would have thought that if you give everything an ID, that it would have just used the ID, if you know what I mean.
0: So that does work. However, that's still reliant on some level of implementation detail. This is just personal opinion. So by adding IDs, you're reliant on the ID being there. A user isn't looking for an ID. A user is looking for a button that says sign in. So it's as a test, it makes more sense to find the text, sign in, and then click on it. So using testing library, it adds that kind of functionality into any test runner. But Cypress is the one I've been using. Uh, So you can do like find by text, sign in. Then click. Find the input field with a label of username and type in the username. Find the input with a label of password. Type in the password. And that way, you're thinking less about how your your code is actually structured and more what the UI looks like.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did, and from memory, Cypress also has a their own way of identifying components, like their own cy attribute or something like that.
0: There is. Yeah. I I can't say to bit, um, um, much, but, Yeah. I, I haven't yeah. used it. Interesting. Ton, I but, right. feel like I need to like dive into Cypress. Yeah, and that's one of the fun things oh, yeah. about these projects for me is no, no, no. I'm just saying that that's one of the things I really love about projects like this, where we're trying to solve problems for ourselves that will then help other people, and we want to make sure that it's as good as possible. So that makes us grow, not just in the thing we're building, but we're able to to take in the new information, take in this new stuff to make the package as good as solid as it can be. So that's that's why I really enjoy this, o- even over like a side project that's just for me putting out just an NPM package that can be helpful to other people can be so useful as a learning tool for yourself.
1: Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I had no idea about what I had a bit of an idea, but not much of an idea of publishing a package. You know, I've, I've been a developer for like maybe, I don't know, six or seven years now and never really created a package that anybody would use up until this point. And so having the opportunity now to sort of play around with these concepts and sort of figure out, yeah, figure out the details of a build process. It's, yeah, it's, it's been great. And I'd love to be able to share this knowledge as well, because I still feel like, and, you know, maybe you know of a good course or a good book or something. I still feel like I can't find anything out there that gives a really good idea of how to build a package that uses, you know, TypeScript, Vue, um, Vue Demi as well, like talking about making it compatible with Vue 3 and Vue 2. Like, I just feel like there's a huge sort of um, a hole In learning resources there so it'd be really nice to sort of build something around that
0: absolutely i think that'd be great well i know what we're doing next
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) the next project maybe a video series we should do a a joint video series maybe on
0: package development that would be so cool we should do it you heard it here first yeah (laughs) all right so at this point we are going to move you've enjoyed this discussion about what we're doing these packages some of the tools we're using techniques we're using and this free
2: announcement of maybe some collaboration in the future we'll see hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium At this point, we'll move on to picks. Picks are the part of the
0: show where we share things we like with the community. They don't have to be programming related. Luke, would you like to go first?
1: Yes. So my pick today is a person and that is Anthony Fu. And I know a lot of his projects have been mentioned and picked in the past. So I just want to pick Anthony Fu, the person, because so he's part of the, the view team. And basically he just keeps coming up with what he, what are in my opinion, just groundbreaking ideas. So stuff like all the in stuff, being able to, like, import glo- imp- components globally, and then at the same time having d.ts files automatically generated for you. Like, it's just amazing. So if you want to have, like, global components, he's got a package for that. If you want to have um, one thing we're starting to do now is automatically import auto imports for composables that we use all of the time. And Anthony Fu has this unplug-in project for um, global imports as well, which, ha- you know, there's libraries for it that do like ref, computed, unmounted. It'll automatically import those ones for you. But you can also use your own composable. So we've got like a use model composable, use model collection composable, and we use them all the time in our project. So being able to auto import those and also have all of the TypeScript files automatically generated for us is just wonderful. And so, you know, Anthony Fu's created a package for that. He's, got, and it's just like, if you go to antfu.me slash projects, just looking at the stuff that he's built, it's just mind blowing. View use. So if you haven't checked out view use yet, it's basically a collection of composition API utilities that are, and they're all going to work for view two and view three. So stuff like dealing with. The webcam dealing with local storage in a view composition API way. There's one they've got that I use all the time for global state. So I actually don't use Pina a lot. I just use view users, um, create global state composable, which is just wonderful. So, you know, he's just got, if you go to, like I said, anfu.me slash projects, he, like everything on that page is just wonderful. View demi. So he created view demi, which basically allows you to create composition API libraries that will work for two. View two and view three. And a lot of you have been hearing about, uh, his latest project or one of his latest projects, which is Uno CSS, which has just been completely blowing my mind. I think somebody picked it in a prior episode as well. View global state, which is a, a great alternative to things like Vuex and Pina. If you want to just, um, do really basic composition API stuff for building global state view global state just makes it really easy to create that global state and yeah so basically everything he builds is gold so if there's anybody to follow on twitter it is uh anthony foo and you know a lot of you have probably been hearing about uno css one of his latest projects which is honestly just blowing my mind i i call it the one utility css library to rule them all i feel like like I'm making a bold prediction here to say that I think Uno CSS is the future of CSS, at least for like the next five to 10 years, simply because rather than trying to be the CSS library, you know, like a, a tailwind or tachyons type thing, Uno CSS is, it's it's not really a library, it's an engine that will allow you as the developer to create your own utility CSS library or some, or, or like Tailwind or Tachyons, whatever, or Bootstrap to create their own CSS library on top of uno css it's just it's brilliant so definitely follow anthony Fu if you're not already and check out a lot of his stuff he's um he's my pick for today he
0: is also the creator of slidev which if you haven't used it is an amazing presentation slide library and tool for building presentations and in, in view uh includes nice functionality like being able to record a video being able to record audio having an admin or not in mean, a presenter side as well as the the pre the view side so you can see like text and stuff. And it's just phenomenal. I've used it for the last few presentations, I've done highly recommended as well. Okay, so I have two picks today. One is a talk by Richard Feldman. Since we've been talking about Elm, I figure I'll just keep plugging Elm for a bit. One is a talk by Richard Feldman, and it is titled From Rails to Elm and Haskell, or some variation on that, which explains the process that No Red Ink went through starting as a Rails-based application and their adoption of First React, then Elm, and then trying out other tools as well. And just some of the the processes that they use and how they came to do this adoption in, in very small controlled tests. So definitely recommend checking that out if you're interested, not just in Elm, but just like this process that a, an existing company can go through of trying out a new technology and determining whether it works or not excellent talk my second pick today as longtime listeners of the show are aware i have been listening to audiobook versions of the expanse series uh, which is a sci-fi series set in the fairly distant future but not like insurmountable future i am currently listening to book number seven persepolis rising it is excellent it makes it, it's it's bringing the plot to its next step, and I just cannot recommend this series enough. I've enjoyed every single book from from book one. It's just such a fun series. The characters are excellent. As you go through each novel, you can see how the characters are growing, how they're changing, how the events have shaped them, and how the, how they're still flawed too. Like this, the book doesn't make the main characters out to be these altruistic heroes. They they are humans who are going through their own issues and dealing with very strange and unknown circumstances as things advance into the future. So if you're into science fiction, highly recommend it. I am very excited. I'm on book seven right now. The final book, which I think is number nine, comes out in a week. I'm not ready for it. I'm going to have to finish book seven and then book eight first. But I'm very excited to get through to the end. It's just been so much fun. So definitely recommend those. With that, we are at the end of our episode today. Hope you all have enjoyed listening. If you'd like to listen to us more, you can find us at viewsonview.com or on Twitter at viewsonview. You can also find us on devchat.tv. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. And you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebold. Hope you have a good day and we'll see you again next week.